inspired by the Canadian Federation of the Blind. Outlook, a show about accessibility, advocacy, and equality. I'm Brian. And I'm Carrie. Outlook. Radio Western. Good morning and welcome to another episode of Outlook on Radio Western. You are either listening on Monday morning at, on 94.9 or you're listening as a podcast and we're available on all po- podcast platforms. Good morning, Brian. Good morning, Care. Well, this is recording in advance again, but uh, this will be airing in the morning. And yeah, you can find us you're catching this live on the radio or you can hear this as a podcast. Just search for Outlook on Radio Western. Yeah, and today we have a, a first actual, technically a, a first panel for Outlook. We've had guests before and multiple guests too, but this is an actual more of a panel. We're going to have a discussion today about some hard topics, some hard subjects, but some, one, some subjects that we think are very important to, and things that we think with our mission for Outlook um, are really central to talking about things that matter and um, sort of breaking the silence on things. And a lot of it's going on in the news um, I thought I'd just start, Brian, by relating it to what's going on t- for our, our Western listeners, because there have been some recent attacks on the campus since school sort of was back in session here, and a lot of it was spreading on social media, and I think we're going to get to that with our group here, because that's how a lot of this stuff comes into um, people's attention these days, by social media, either TikTok or Facebook in our case, I think. But, but as far as c- uh, campus, this episode's airing on Monday the 20th. It's actually voting uh, election day here in Canada. So hope everybody's out there yes, voting. Yes, go vote. Remind everyone. But also, also there was a protest uh, at Western on Friday. A bunch of students had a walkout. And one of the students said, we've been outraged by the recent events on our campus, the sexual gender-based violence, as well as a separate act of violence, said Van Neck. He's a third-year psychology student. At our core, we're gathering as a community on Friday to show support, but also we'd like to call on our institution to make some changes to avoid having to do this in the future. So that's what we're going to talk about today, kind of how we can do better in the future with situations that come up in in all kinds of communities. And today specifically, we're talking about the blindness community. So on our panel today, we have five people who we're going to sort of explore this topic further. So I do just want to announce before we start that there's a trigger warning. Um, Some listeners may find this content uh, triggering. Just before we begin, I wanted to say that. So we're going to start with our panel today. First on our panel is Stacey Cervenka, and she's worked for 15 years as a public policy advisor and analyst for several elected officials, government agencies, and national nonprofit organizations. And she currently resides in Nebraska with her husband and two children. So, uh, Stacy, maybe just tell us a little bit about yourself here now. Uh, maybe just sort of give us some context and some background about your blindness. And Sure. Well, my name is Stacy Cervenka. 
I've worked for about 15 years in public policy, particularly public policy surrounding disability rights, special education, vocational rehabilitation, and disability justice. Um, I've worked for a United States Senator. I've worked for several state agencies and federally mandated state boards, as well as most recently been the director of public policy for the American Foundation for the Blind. Currently, I do consulting um, on public policy and planning for seven, seven different state rehabilitation agencies. Um, I have been born, I was born uh, with optic nerve hypoplasia, which means that I have been legally blind all my life. I have never had any sight in my left eye. I describe it to people as what do you see when, what do you see with the back of your head? It's not darkness. Uh, or what do you see with your elbow? It's not darkness. It's nothing um, because my optic nerves are literally not attached to my brain. With my right eye, I have a small amount of vision that has decreased as I've gotten older. I have been active in the National Federation of the Blind um, from 1999 to 2018. That included holding several national leadership positions, state leadership positions. Most recently, I was the chairperson of the NFB Blind Parents Group. And I have known about sexual misconduct in the blindness community since 2001. And since that time, I have been reporting it to leaders and have been consistently silenced, ignored, blown off, and had my concerns minimal, minimized. Um, and I can tell a little bit more later, but I have collected over 70 stories from people in the NFB who have experienced sexual misconduct at NFB-related events and programs. And I have been analyzing the themes that have come up and, um, you know, given a lot of thought to the systems that allow these events to take place. Right. And that's what we want to talk about. We got to figure out why this has ha happened and to, and to understand what we can do going forward. Absolutely. So thanks for all of that. Yeah. Yes. Thanks, Stacey. And Next on our panel, we have Wayne Piercy. Wayne is a New England trumpeter and composer who has received outstanding recognition as a classical and jazz soloist. Wayne recently recorded a recital dedicated to survivors of sexual abuse at the National Federation of the Blind Training Centers, which you can find on his YouTube channel. To learn more about Wayne, you can visit him on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, or you can check out his website, which is Wayne Piercy. Piercy is spelt P-E-A-R-C-Y dot com. So that's WaynePiercy.com. And then Wayne, yeah, if you wouldn't mind chiming in now, just tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe some things that I didn't mention, and specifically about your blindness and whether growing up you were integrated or went to a school for the blind. Sure. Well, it's 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 great to be here, and 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 of course, as always with these things, I want to give a special thanks to Stacy Cervanka for uh, allowing us to have a platform for our voices to be heard. Um, Stacy, we couldn't have done this without you. We really appreciate all the work you've been doing around this. So, I was born in 1986 with a um, a condition called uh, anophthalmia. So, basically, what anophthalmia means is that my eyes didn't develop. Um, so I have prosthesis and, um, um, I got those when I was six. Uh, I was integrated for most of my schooling. However, I did take a couple of classes at the Texas school for the blind. Um, when I was living there, I took, uh, math and PE there and then was bused back to my public school. This was uh, seventh and eighth grade for the rest of my 
courses. Uh, so that was that was cool because I could actually have a positive uh, gym experience, you know, with the other blind kids in the area, and that that was that was really neat. Um, th- uh, I also started playing trumpet around uh, sixth grade in in Texas, and uh, continued to do that to the, uh, to this day. And um, you mentioned the concert for survivors. Um, I, d- I recorded this as a way to not only heal myself, start my healing process after I came forward about my experiences of sexual abuse and misconduct at the Colorado Center for the Blind, but I also wanted to do this for other survivors so that they would have a, a sanctuary and a place to heal through the power of music and give them the encouragement that they need to come forward with their own stories. Great. Yeah, we need positive ways of coping with this stuff and, and getting through it. We do. We absolutely do. This is very important that we, we you know, unify as a community. And it's very important that we get the word out in as concise and as transparent of a way as we possibly can. So I'm committed to doing that. Great. Thank you for being here. And of so you and, you and Brian have music in common a little bit. and you, you We and I, do. That's so great. Yeah. Awesome. But you and, I, you, you, you and I both have a prosthesis. So that's what we have in common, I guess, there. Aha. Cool. I have one Great. in my left eye. But. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, I have both. So that's, that's amazing. That's, that's very cool. It's pretty common, but I don't, it doesn't get talked about a, a lot. So there's still a lot of um, <laughs> incorrect information about what, what these prostheses are really like. But that's another yeah. show. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, our next guest on the panel is Addie Hugan. And Addie works as a digital accessibility consultant and tester for a university in the United States. So, Addie, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself, uh, your blindness story, and your uh, educational past to give us a bit of context for what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, thank you so much for having me on the panel today. I'm so grateful for this platform to be able to speak up about these important issues and raise awareness so that hopefully we can um, participate in contributing towards positive change. And I became blind at the age of three, resulting from a brain tumor. Um, and so I've been blind ever since I can remember. And I was always integrated in my education. Great. Hmm. It's great. There's like, that's why we talk about this too, because there's all different journeys people took and it affects what we, what we know of the blindness community and what we get exposed to at, at what age which can really affect um, some of the stories we're going to talk about today and the, li- the lives of all these guests. So, And next on our panel, we have Jasmine Fien. Thanks so much, Jasmine, for coming on the show today and participating in this important discussion. Jasmine has very recently graduated with a BA in education from the University of Cambridge in the UK. She comes from Brunei in Southeast Asia, but is currently still living in Cambridge. With her partner Grant and her beloved miniature poodle, Isla, as she tries to work out what's next. So yeah, Jasmine, if you could speak a little bit more just about yourself, anything that I missed or didn't cover there, and a little bit about your blindness and school experience growing up. Thank you, Brian, and thank you to Outlook for having me. I was born in 1996 with retinoblastoma, which is a type of childhood cancer. I had treatment for this condition for about eight years spending quite a lot of my formative years in Canada, actually. I have a very soft spot for Canada and Canadians. Awesome. Um, Kerry, I also have a prosthesis in my left eye, you might like to know. Nice. 
as um, so I lost my sight at age eight. So I have some memories of what things used to look like, although it's getting hazier and hazier with age. Me too. <laughs> as for schooling, it's quite a difficult thing, really, because in Brunei, where I come from, there is nothing like the NFB or the CNIB. Mm-hmm. Equally, there is no school for the blind. Okay. So effectively, I went through mainstream schooling, but I had absolutely no help or support for my blindness because it's completely unheard of. So I come here with really an experience of having had to get by on my own, really. So the NFB and similar organizations were sometimes a breath of fresh air, but also quite disappointing because I had such high hopes for an organization that would help blind people. But then I found out the reality, but we will talk about that a little later, I'm sure. Yeah, and I totally get that. And yeah, that's what we're all going to talk about here today. Yeah, we're, we'll expand on that briefly as well later how, you know, you go to these conventions for the first time and we were in Orlando in 2018 and it's just, at first it's so amazing and so overwhelming, but yet in a good way. But then, yes, some these things come out now and you, you start to question a lot of things, which we'll definitely get into in more detail. But thanks so much, Jasmine, for, for being here today. And then we have our Canadian um, representative here, I guess, on the panel other than Brian and I, Elizabeth Lalonde. And so Elizabeth, you're the one who connected me with Stacy in the, in the first place. So thanks for that. And uh, so we wouldn't be doing this without you. So if you want to tell us and the listeners a bit about you, um, your blindness story and your education, and then um, maybe explain what the PTC is and its mission briefly, if you want to. Absolutely. Thank you so much for doing this really important uh, program. Carrie and Brian and Stacy and all of you for coming on. I think it's such an important thing and I am not one to sit back. I'm one to always get out there and tell the truth and no matter how hard it is. So my name's Elizabeth Lalonde and I was born with retinitis pigmentosa, which is a genetic eye condition that causes the retina to uh, the cells in the retina to deteriorate. I have sort of an unusual form of this because a lot of people with it have tunnel vision, which means they only see through the center of their eyes, but I am the opposite and I just have a little bit of side peripheral vision. It's very, very uh, minuscule, but I see some shapes and shadows out of mainly the left side of my eye. Uh, The challenge was when I was growing up, uh, there was and still is unfortunately in Canada, the belief that People should use their vision as much as possible and keep using it and only then learn any other non-visual blindness skill if you lose all of your vision. So I was taught to read large print, but it had had to be very large and I could only see one letter at a time and it was very, very stressful. And uh, I mean, it showed what in a, what uh, how much I love books because I would read books on this TV screen that that magnified the letters uh, two inches high, and I would I would try, but it it was very difficult. And it was only one day in grade seven when I broke down crying because I'd studied for a science test, science test, but I couldn't read my exam. And they finally started reading me, getting human readers to read me my exams, and my and they finally. Um, got me some recorded books because they hadn't taught me braille 
and my my grades went from C's to A's and B's instantly. So that just showed that that using my very limited vision was not the most productive way for me to function. Um, I'm I'm older than some most of the people on this panel. I'm was born in 1973, so I'm 48 years old, and I was in school before the advent of the talking computer. So um, I didn't. I got a very archaic version of one in high school. And I used that once I got it, I just lived and breathed with it. And it, it usually lost most of my work, but I didn't really care because at least I could know what I was writing for once. And then when I, I went to college, I had a, a more slightly more modern talking computer. So I used that. And, and they, they did teach me a little bit of Braille in high school, but it never became very efficient for me because it wasn't integrated into the rest of my, my life. I went to uh, the University of Victoria in British Columbia, and I got a double major in cultural anthropology and journalism writing. And then I worked for the government for a few years doing uh, communications, uh, writing press releases and, and speeches for ministers. Um, I've always been a blindness and disability advocate. I've always felt it's 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 just been in me to to be a social um, advocate and there's and I always felt there was never enough advocacy around disability and blindness issues. I knew nothing about the National Federation of the Blind until my friends uh, and mentors came from the United States uh, to to let us know that this organization existed and that people actually had a positive attitude about blindness and there was no such thing in Canada. Um, the only organization we had uh, here was very, very negative, very, very custodial, uh, very low expectations for blind people. And I never wanted any of that. So when I discovered the philosophy of the NFB, I was extremely happy. I went to, you know, the first convention in New Orleans in 97 and was kind of blown away because we had nothing like this in Canada. Once I found out about the training centers in the States, um, I was, it, my dream started to, to provide training, very essential, essential training for blind Canadians because we don't have any in Canada. We're lucky here if we get one cane lesson, if you lose your sight, and it's still that way today. So we have no training centers. So I, my dream then began to start a training center and a positive, empowering training center. I got the opportunity to go to the Louisiana Center for the Blind in 2010 and experienced, uh, had an experience there that was certainly life-changing in many ways. Um, there was some, definitely some good that happened and, and it was a learning experience. I did the full program. Um, I basically wanted to learn the model of structured discovery because that's what I wanted to to promote in Canada. Um, of course, it wasn't all good, and there was a lot of uh, negative experiences, which I can go into later. But um, I did I did make it through, <laughs> and I did continue with my dream. And we now I started the Pacific Training Center for the Blind. We've been running programs uh, for seven years now. We don't have a full time uh, live in style program yet, but that's our goal and we're actually starting a capital project to raise funds for that. Our program's called Blind People in Charge and it's that's what it is. It's about uh, blind people being in charge, not only of the center and the programs because all of our staff are blind, but also of ourselves. And I think that's really 
what all this is about is that we have to be in charge of ourselves and nobody can t- should be telling us um, what we should put up with and what we shouldn't put up with. Um, it's, it's, it's about empowerment. And I think that's what's gotten lost, unfortunately, along the line uh, in many of these 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 centers and programs so i think there's probably more but i'm also a single mom and i have two teenage boys so they keep me very busy as well and i was president of the canadian federation of the blind for nine years and that basically is this the sister version of the nfb in the states and that is the only you know really empowering organization that promotes that positive philosophy in canada and that began somewhere in the late 90s, right? Yes, it did. Yes. Mm-hmm. So there are three main centers. I don't know if anybody wants to speak this specifically, but to make sure we have all the facts right about that. The NFB has three main centers, right? The Louisiana Center for the Blind and Colorado Center and then Blindness Inc., is it in Minnesota? Yes. So, so the NFB has three centers that are actually... Um, not run by the organization because they are separate nonprofits, but they work very closely with the organization. And most of the members of their boards of directors are, if not all of the members of their boards of directors are members of the National Federation of the Blind. And the training, the training um, philosophy that they espouse is theoretically inspired by the NFB. And they're certainly heavily promoted by the NFB. But these centers they're actually also a part of a larger organization, slightly larger organization called the um, National Blindness Professional Certification Board, the NBPCB. And the NBPCB actually certifies centers to um, blindness rehabilitation training centers to uh, have programs that you know, espouse this same philosophy, which is called structured discovery. And in a second, I'll, I'll define that um, in a little bit. But um, Structured Discovery Centers, there are currently three. There is the Louisiana Center for the Blind. There's the Colorado Center for the Blind and Blind Inc., which is in Minneapolis. And then there are also three state-run centers at the Nebraska Commission for the Blind and Visually Impaired, the New Mexico Commission for the Blind, and Hoapano Services for the Blind in Hawaii. Now, they also um, are certified by NBPCB which again, all the members of the board of NBPCB, you know, they're NFB, they're affiliated with NFB. So all six of these centers um, have very similar philosophies. Now, I do want to say this in complete transparency and honesty. I received, like I said, I received 70 stories from, well, over 70 stories from survivors of sexual misconduct. And Although uh, they they spout, they came from you know a wide variety of training centers, the only NFB one, or the only structured discovery centers that were ever mentioned were the three NFB centers: the Louisiana Center for the Blind, the Colorado Center for the Blind, and Blind Inc. I did not hear a single story from Hawaii, New Mexico, or Nebraska. Of course, that does not mean that there are not stories. And if people have stories, I'm more than willing to listen to them and believe all those stories. But I have not heard any. um, And I think part of it might be that they're state-run centers and therefore they're subject to a greater level of accountability and supervision. Now, with that being said, I also did hear stories from other state agencies, such as the Iowa Commission for the Blind, the Utah Commission for the Blind, Blind Industries and Services of Maryland. Um, They also had, you know, each of those had more than one incident reported to me. Um, And it's interesting to know that while those are not structured discovery centers technically, 
um, they do share a lot in common and they, they do work closely with structured discovery centers. So when we talk about the, the culture and the policies that exist at these centers that really provide a fertile landscape for misconduct, it's understandable that some of these other centers that implement structured discovery policies, um, they also pertain to them as well. Right. So maybe if you want to then, uh, we've used the term several times, maybe to define what structured discovery is, because a lot of us, like I say, I ask about people's education. I ask about their skill level um, as blind people, because that affects the kind of lives we ha um, have. So, and that can affect the kind of uh, help we need and where we go to get it. And it sounds like, of course, the U.S. has a, has a you know, a much larger population than Canada. Uh, so there's, it just sounds like there's a lot of these organizations and because of all this, I, I assume there's a school for the blind in every state also, and just sounds like it's a lot, but. Well, structure discovery really began in, I mean, if, you know, blind people have actually been teaching one another and teaching techniques to one another since the beginning of time. I mean, telling each other like, Hey, this is how I do something. You know, I use this tree branch as a cane back in the day or whatever it was. Um, and so certainly blind people have always been problem solving on our own and teaching each other things. However, the blindness, um, blindness training, and it used to be that many um, instructors of blind people were blind themselves. But then, you know, especially at, you know, the end of the 1800s, early 1900s, as professions began really organizing, um, the blindness, you know, blindness professionals really began organizing and, you know, developing certifications and licenses. And um, when that happened, a lot of people who were cited really kind of took the helm. And a lot of the licensing and certification requirements excluded people who were blind and low vision. And so, Back in the 50s, um, at, at first at the California Orientation Center for the Blind, and then later at the Iowa Commission for the Blind, um, a, a number of blind instructors led by Kenneth Jernigan, um, you know, began really sort of starting their own kind of rogue philosophy that really prioritized the experiences of blind people. And instead of, um, you know, instead of seeing blind people sort of as um, vessels to be filled, seeing them as people who had their own experiences and perceptions of life that could help them in the world, that we didn't have to be given all this information, that we had a lot of ways of getting this information ourselves and using it. And so what that kind of translates to is I often tell people, you know, a regular cane travel lesson might include an O&M instructor showing a student to um, an intersection, a crosswalk, telling them, hey, this is a lighted intersection. Uh, there's two lanes to cross. There's a, you know, there's a stoplight over there. Um, you know, it's uh, a one-way street going east. Um, and you're going to, you know, it's two lanes. Okay, now let's practice going. Okay, you're going to want to angle a little bit to the right. Okay, look, now step up on the curb. And they kind of teach you the, the exact, sort of exactly how to cross that street. Whereas in structured discovery, they would walk with you and say, okay, what do you feel with your cane? Okay, you feel a drop-off. That's a curve, huh? Or, hey, you feel that the buildings um, don't, like you feel that there's sunshine and wind on you now. So there's not buildings on either side of you. So that might, you know, let you know that you're at a crosswalk. Okay, what do you hear? Do you listen to the cars? Are they going one way or both ways? Do you think this is a one-way street or a two-way street? Okay, listen, 
does this seem like it's a controlled intersection or an uncontrolled intersection? So they really kind of teach you the problem solving skills you need to not theoretically be confined to route travel, but to be able to problem solve and um, your way, um, you know, in unfamiliar areas and that sort of stuff. And it also highly prioritizes non-visual techniques instead of low vision techniques. So um, at these programs, students with some residual vision wear sleep shades and, um, you know, learn, all students learn to use a long white cane, all students learn to read Braille, all students learn to use um, voice technology as opposed to magnification technology on computers. Now, um, in many ways, this is um, incredibly needed because so many people who are blind and low vision, as Elizabeth talked about, and I've experienced this too, if you have a little bit of vision, you're encouraged to solely work with that vision, even when using a non-visual technique might be more effective. So for example, a lot of students are encouraged like, hey, you're reading large print at a really low speed and your nose is an inch from the paper, but good for you, you're reading print, even mm -hmm. though you might be able to read Braille much faster with much less physical and brain fatigue. And hey, there's no reason you can't learn both. Print Braille readers, I mean, then you have every available tool in your tool belt. So a lot of this is needed because there is a lot of ableism associated with total blindness and a lot of, um, you know, hey, the more vision you have, the, the better off you're going to be and the more independent you're going to necessarily be. However, as we're going to talk about how this has morphed in real life has really become this rigid system, this rigid authoritarian system that doesn't really focus on the individual consumer. It focuses much more on a rigid, a rigid um, paint by numbers curriculum and set of tools. So, you know, I've heard people, you know, I've, I've known prof blindness professionals who have come up with ideas for consumers with additional disabilities or who have circumstances that might not be the exact, you know, you know, paint by numbers blind person and they're told well, that's not structured discovery even though that might actually help this person live an independent life so structured discovery has become the goal as opposed to independence being the goal and some of these structured discovery tools being one option and one pathway to achieve those goals so that's kind of how i would say what structured discovery is um, on paper and we can also talk a little bit more as we go on and as Jasmine talks about the culture and how it's actually implemented in, in actuality. Yeah. That, that answer there is, is so informative because it really, it demonstrates how, you know, no, no, nothing is black and white. And as blind people we have, we, it, we tend to also have multiple disabilities. Um, there's so many, there's so many factors involved. So to have such a rigid method that's, that's set in, in stone that they're, they're going by where there's no, sort of room for for an individual case basis i think that that is is a is a problem because you know we all we all learn differently we all have different skill sets and that doesn't mean anyone's better than anyone else we just we all have different experiences you are listening to outlook here today on radio western or in future as a podcast I'm going to take a quick break and we'll be right back Welcome back. You are listening to Outlook on Radio Western. Trigger warning. This episode contains discussions of sexual and emotional abuse and things such as self-harm and suicide. 
We are speaking today with a panel featuring five panelists discussing the psychological and sexual abuse that occurs in the National Federation of the Blind and Structured Discovery Training Centers in the United States. Going to continue now with Elizabeth Lalonde and her Canadian perspective. I believe that in the United States, uh, the structured discovery model has become warped. I don't think the, the model itself is, is what the problem is. I, I believe it's the people behind the model. And what I experienced in Louisiana was uh, more of a military style of uh, approach, like Stacy said, very rigid. Um, so I didn't know why that was the case. I was very confused because I did know the theory behind structure discovery. And I certainly did learn some of that empowerment there, but but there was also way too much of this rigidness and break you down. I, I'm, it's it's more of a military yes. break you down um, and, and, and then bring you up. That is not, in my mind, what structure discovery means. That's something that people have put on that. And, and I think it's actually very unfortunate that the term structure discovery has, has been associated with this because that's not what it is at its core. So in Canada, when we started the Pacific Training Center for the Blind, our, uh, we took, um, we took the, the, the good things, the, the core model of structured discovery, but we are absolutely adapting it to the individual. And it is about the individual and their needs and their goals. And it is extremely flexible. I, I talk about structured discovery as being a spectrum. And yes, um, there, there's. It starts all the way from what um, Stacy was saying, more of a very root based, very rote, and then way up to you know uh, uh, the other side of the spectrum where you're just you're literally problem solving everything, and nobody really you know tell you just figure it out on your own. But in reality, there's there's a whole uh, everybody, all the students and, and blind people fit in in somewhere in that spectrum, and there are some people that still do need that root base. They may have other disabilities. Um, they may not have the same spatial orientation that, that others do. So, so we work with the people. We, we, we teach them that what, what will work for them and help them to be as empowered and as independent as they can be. And I wanted to throw in two things. Um, one, one that, you know, you had just said earlier um, was that you know, the majority of blind people, like the vast majority of blind people either have an additional disability, a chronic illness, or a mental health condition. Um, that's just simply a fact. Um, it, it is a huge percentage of our community. And with that being said, um, and, and there are many different reasons for this. Um, first of all, you know, in the United States, we're beginning to talk about how racism is a mental health concern because every day, if you if you're you know uh, uh, you know a marginalized race, you go into a public. There are people who have negative stereotypes about you. There are people who have misconceptions about you. There are people who are overtly and covertly hostile to you. So if that's the case, then ableism is also a mental health condition because every time as blind people we go outside our house. Now, this may or may not happen, but we are prepared to experience negative misconceptions, discrimination. Anytime we enter a new program or a new, you know, join an activity, like we know that or, or you know, uh, interview for a job, we're going into a space knowing that it could be very hostile to us and that there's a good chance that it will be. So that causes a lot of stress and anxiety and depression. And if this happens over a sustained period of time, that actually creates trauma. 
And beyond sort of the trauma that exists over long stretches of being considered sort of a pariah of society um, or by the majority group, there's also trauma, more um, one-time large trauma that, that affects how perhaps how we went blind. Whether that, you know, we were in a car accident, whether it was due to gun violence, whether it was a traumatic brain injury. And so often we have a lot of trauma over how we became blind. And then those people who have been blind their whole life may have a lot of more sustained, complex trauma. So the majority of blind people do have some sort of mental health condition that could be diagnosed. And that's, I do too. It's, It's not a put down. It's just like blindness. There's there's nothing wrong with being blind. It's respectable to be blind. It's respectable to be neurodiverse. It's, you know, it's a medical condition. Um, so because of that, I think that's often not taken into consideration. And it's kind of thought that at these centers that if you just teach people how to use a cane, then they'll be employed. If you teach them how to use JAWS, they'll be employed. And there's not any acknowledgement of the... The, the chronic illnesses and the mental health conditions and the additional disabilities people face. And I also want to throw out one thing, and I'm sure Elizabeth would agree, even though route travel, you know, pro- being able to problem solve and travel in, um, you know, new environments is just a really great skill to have. I'm so grateful that I have it. My husband and I travel all over the world, truly all over the country with our kids. However, mm. regardless of who you are, Sometimes you might want to just learn a route because whether you have another disability or not, like you just want to know how to get somewhere because you don't need everything in your life to be challenging or, you know what I mean? So it, it like, I think the route travel is, you know, I, I tend to believe that it's not the best way to teach all the time. I also don't think we can stigmatize it, stigmatize it all the time. Um, because mm-hmm. sometimes route travel, I know for me, like there are times when I've just asked, or I, even since I've graduated the center, I've gotten a mobility instructor to simply show me, how am I going to get to work? How am I going to get around my workplace? How do I get to the subway? How do I get to wherever? Just to show me so that on the first day of work, I, you know, so, or even before, I don't have to just kind of roam around and stress myself out. Like, and I, I you know, I think it seems so small, but it seems like we should be able to admit this with no shame. And so many I, people have a hard time with I, that. I think what this really is about, honestly, is it's, it's about choice. I always say independence is true. Independence is about choice. And that's what, that's what I teach our, that's what we teach our students at the Pacific training center for the blind. So we, 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 we help them to learn as many different skills as possible, you know, provide them with as many tools in their tool belt. But like Stacy said, depending on the context or the situation, um, you know, if you've got a lot of time, you're not in a rush, you know, everything's great, the weather's warm, you can do structure discovery all you want and, and you know, and, and, and look, you know, doing exploring. And I always say there's no such thing as getting lost. If you're not getting lost, you're not trying hard enough because it's just about exploring, right? But there are times, like Stacy said, when no, I, you know, I, I need to learn how to get to work. I don't want to mess around. And, and that's my choice. And that's, that's in my mind what this is all about. It's it's and and you don't even have to go back to an instructor to teach you the route to work. You can even get a friend, or you know you can even figure out a route on your own if you before you go to work. This is about blind people taking charge. So, um, I I just think that we we've really sort of um, stereotyped structure discovery and and this and the, these centers have as well. Like they, they've become yeah very cookie cutter and it doesn't need to be that way. And I think it's very sad. That, that, that it has become this way. 
So discussing more as we've sort of been doing the culture and policies that do lead to these atmospheres um, that are fertile for psychological and emotional and sexual abuse. I think it was it Jasmine who wanted to speak on this. Thank you, Kerry. Um, I think to understand the culture in the NFB and its associated training centers, I think we need to understand two things. So number one, Stacey, you alluded to this earlier, but at the core of these centers is an ideal of what a blind person should be. And anything straying from these ideals is seen as, and I mean the pun here, is seen as unacceptable. And number two, I think, Elizabeth, you alluded to this as well, the culture around these centres very much relies on an overreach of power and control. I think they do want to change the way you think. They do want to change the way you behave. They do want to change the way you see the world and even the way you live your life. As Elizabeth said, this is often done through the philosophy of breaking one down in order to build up. And I think that in 2020, 2021, sorry, we've come to the point where we know that this is frankly absurd. You know, it, it doesn't matter whether you have an existing men mental health concern, they will still shatter you with the hope that they will build you back up. But the problem is not all of us can be put back together. So um, to give context on my own experience, I suffer from a myriad of mental health conditions, uh, depression, eating disorders, anxiety. It is not a mental health condition exactly, but ADHD, which comes with which its own challenges. Um, and most importantly, I have childhood complex PTSD, especially towards anger. And while I was training, uh, one of my instructors would get repeatedly very angry with me. Um, he would be shouting at me and, and saying things like, you know, it if you're not going to give 100% of your effort into this, you're wasting my time, you're wasting your time, and you might as well just go home and sit at home and be pretty and have mum and dad wait on you for the rest of your life. Or, you know, you might be thinking that playing up like this makes me look like a fool, but it's you that look like a fool. They, Everyone thinks that you're a fool and you're acting like you're really stupid right now. And throughout all this, I would be sobbing uncontrollably and begging him to stop. I started getting panic attacks every morning when I woke up. I started to contemplate suicide because at the time in my mind, killing myself was actually a better option than possibly facing that anger because I was so frankly terrified by it because it triggered a lot of childhood trauma for me. And you would think that if you have a student sobbing and begging you to please, please stop, you would back down, but, but he didn't. And I have no doubt that he thought that he was breaking me down to build me up. But frankly, to this day, I really, really struggle with travel. Because whenever I travel, I can hear my instructor's voice in my head. And when I make a mistake or when I make a wrong turn or such, I sometimes have to stop and self-harm because I just cannot bear to hear his voice in my head. And so I am now, I'm now frankly afraid of traveling by myself. I have to fight it because traveling is absolutely essential in one's life, but I frankly hate it. And that completely in my mind defeats the purpose of what the training centers try to teach anyway. 
this kind of treatment, I think, is condoned because I went there not the ideal blind person. And so they are going to get me there by any means necessary. And in such a culture, there is no wonder, really, that it spawns a lot of abuse. I think it ties back to the fact that um, the sighted community will often ask us about our blindness, just out of the blue, the first thing they say when they meet us, and we're expected to educate them. And if we don't, if we're having a bad day, then we're angry, and then we represent all blind people as being angry in any social. I think it's similar that there's this thing about, like you say, what a blind person should be and how we should behave and how the world will see us representing all of blind people. And that if anybody deviates from that, then people feel threatened and they feel like they have to um, take control of that. And and I also think tying, tying into the atmosphere that is fertile for psychological, emotional and sexual abuse, I think that also might tie in sort of what um, Stacy was saying earlier about a large portion of blind people do have either other disabilities or trauma from from their what caused their blindness or all of these things and people that have experienced this in the past and had the, these traumatic experiences generally are more vulnerable and are susceptible to this type to abuse like this so this is Wayne jumping in and I just I just wanted to elaborate a little bit on you know my experience with the um you know with the culture and 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 just sort of a you know an overview of not not just the training center culture, but just the the organization at large. Um, you know, when I was growing up, music was the most important thing in my life, and still is. Um, and I knew that I was going to be involved in music from age ten. Um, my parents, even though they had been you know federationists since. 1975 and both worked off and on at the Louisiana Center for the Blind. They were, you know, and very involved in NFB. They were very supportive of my individuality. They were very supportive of the fact that I wanted to be, you know, involved in music. But I want to say that um, music in the organization has never been something that's been, you know, it's it, 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 the organization hasn't actively, you know, word for word verbatim said, you should not be a musician. But I can tell you from growing up in the in the organization that that um, stereotypic blindness type things such as being a musician are looked down upon pretty heavily. And um, I wasn't openly harassed about being a musician or choosing this life, but I can tell you that my mom was. Um, and my mom would talk to me about how, you know, center other, you know, center staff would, you know, harass her about me wanting to, to, to do this and, you know, be, be a performer and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, I wasn't really, I don't really feel like I was very respected by a lot of the staff and, and, you know, because I grew up with them, like they were, they were part of my family, but I feel like I was sort of the misunderstood child that, 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 you know, in some, in some ways wanted to go his own way and that, that sort of thing. Um, so that, that was, that was really terrible. So I never, ever felt like I fit in with the NFB because I never really fit their image. I was always sort of the type that marched to the beat of his own drum, so to speak, no pun intended, and did things the way I wanted to do them. Um, I was never diagnosed with any type of, you know, autism or, or anything like that, but I do know that I have a sensory issue. Um, I'm very sensitive to loud noises um, that makes traveling with a cane um, hard for me. I use a guide dog now. Um, not sure whether I'm going back for 
another one, but that's a, that's a whole other topic. Um, but I, I do have this problem. It's gotten better since I've gotten older and, and live on my own and that sort of thing. But going to an NFB center, I was almost forced by my parents to go. I was put under a lot of pressure to, to go to a center. Um, I remember going out on you know travel routes and going to cross these eight lane roads like two eight lane roads that came together and, you know, with no audible signal or anything, turn islands in the middle uh, on each corner, you know, just all kinds of stuff. And I would, I mean, I didn't just completely break down, but I couldn't process all that noise. Mm -hmm. But I also didn't realize that it was okay for me or should have been okay, rather, let's put it that way. It should have been okay for me to be able to say, to my instructor, hey, listen, I'm not comfortable doing this right now. Like, I can't handle all of this noise. I thought that, be, you know, and this is because of my upbringing, I just thought, oh, I have to do this. This is what's expected. This is what's expected of me. And I think because of the, 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 the culture around cane travel instructors, I think are some of the worst at, the, at these centers. I have to just go out on a limb and say that. I think the cane travel instructors at these centers are doing so much of the bullying and, you know, harassing that we're going to, we're going to talk about today. Um, you know, they, they, they are the ones who will tear you down the most. And Jasmine, it's no surprise to me what you're, what you've been, what you said about, about travel instructor doing that to you, um, saying those types of things to you. It's totally believable growing up in the organization and watching things happen, being a part of it, um, to know that that's what you experienced. So that's, that, that's basically, you know, what I have to say about that. The, uh, the, the travel training environment is very, very hostile in a lot of ways and, and can really lead to a lot of lasting negativity on travel. Um, and I, and I do struggle with that. I definitely, I definitely do. Also very quickly, I wanted to say, uh, this is an overarching sort of cultural thing about the organization. I noticed when I was in high school, you know, so many people leaving the centers and getting so hopped up on the, on the NFB rhetoric and the, and I hate to use the word, the Kool-Aid, but I'll, I'll use it anyway, the Kool-Aid, um, and going into this O&M orientation and mobility master's program, just without even thinking about it. There's a orientation and mobility master's degree at Louisiana Tech University. Um, some of the, the instructors at the Louisiana Center for the Blind teach there. So these students would graduate from the program and just immediately decide, oh, that's what I want to go do. I want to go, you know, be an orientation and mobility instructor without, or, or teacher of blind students, they have a program doing that too, without taking a second to once think about whether this is something that you are actually going to be good at. Do you really have what it takes to help someone else? Do you really enjoy helping others? Do you, do you get rewarded you know, spiritually for helping someone learn how to cross the street, that sort of thing. So these people were basically just going and trying to relive their training over and over and over again through various ways. And that's what I call fake empowerment. And I believe that a lot of what the NFB has done to us 
those of us who have grown up in the organization and those of us who have had to deal with type with these types of, of sexual abuse and mental psychological abuse, we have been the recipients of fake empowerment. And that's, I think there's real, there's positive empowerment showing you how to better yourself and, and embrace your individuality and embrace who you are as a person. But the empowerment that NFB preaches, the rhetoric that NFB preaches is all about fitting their image and doing the things that they believe are trendy or upstanding as a blind person. And that in no way, in my mind, is true and meaningful empowerment. And I want to really quickly say that, man, Wayne, you just hit so many things. And I I think the last thing you said, Wayne, is a lot of their ideas of what a blind person should be are rooted very heavily in classism and uh, particular, no, 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 classism and ableism. And I also want to share that I initially, so I worked for a member of the U.S. Senate for five years, and then I decided I needed to get some, a master's degree, some letters at the end of my name. So for about six months, I did enter the O&M program there and I, I didn't want to be a practitioner, but I wanted to have, basically I wanted the master's degree, which I ended up getting somewhere else. And one of the reasons I left, well, there are two reasons. The first one was that, the, man, the coursework, it was nothing. It was nothing that someone who was an O&M instructor would need to know. It was, I mean, the classes were just not master's degree level. I would say they weren't even bachelor's degree level. There was no discussion about how, like pedagogy, how do adults learn? How does the adult brain work? How do adults learn best? We didn't learn about, you know, trauma-informed practice. We didn't learn, I mean, all it was was basically reading NFB literature. Like the all of our textbooks were pretty much, you know, written by NFB members and distributed by NFB. And it wasn't like, it makes sense to maybe have one or two of these to show that, look, this is, um, we want to introduce you to this consumer organization, but it was basically, it wasn't a master's program. It was basically a bunch of NFB literature. And I I mean, I I can't even overemphasize how non-rigorous and non-academic it was. You know, the other thing I really want to say, and then I'll be quiet about but Wayne, you brought up something, you used the word cult. And the word cult is thrown around a lot with NFB. It's almost overused. However, recently I was listening to a podcast about cults, and I still do not believe that NFB is a full-fledged cult. No, but and I don't thing that I, I don't either. However, however, I took a lot of notes because when I was listening to it about cults, I was like, oh my goodness, this actually does describe a lot of NFB's practices. Like it talked about how they, they do this behavior modification with attention and praise whenever you go along with the flow and you do the things they want you to do and how they really attract people who are looking for commonality. Um, they, they attract people who are looking for something, who want community, who want to meet people who will accept them theoretically. Um, but then they basically make you feel terrible until they can remake you in your image. So Louisiana's you know, famous for saying that they break people down and then build them back up. That's exactly what cults do. That's exactly their way of brainwashing people. Now they do it to a different level, but their whole means of brainwashing is they break you down. They isolate you. They, they just, they, they break you down and then they say they build you back up, but they're building you back up and remaking you in their image. Um, and you know, there's withdrawal of positive reinforcement, um, or outright punishment if you're not totally devoted to the NFB or if um, 
you're, you know, you're, you ask a question that you're not supposed to ask, or you don't do everything that the leaders want you to do. I remember I was invited to this leadership seminar at NFB National Center, and I couldn't go. And I had to say, you know, I'm hosting a baby shower for my best friend in my, you know, in my living room that day. And all my NFB friends were telling me, don't tell them that, don't tell them that's the reason. And I did tell them that's the reason. I'm like, if you can't understand that I'm hosting a baby shower for my best friend and you think I need to come to a leadership seminar instead, that's that's crazy. And you know, I, I often hear, you know who controls you when you learn who you can't ask questions about and who you can't say no to. And with NFB, there's this whole leadership structure that you're not supposed to ask questions about. And you're not supposed to, you're not supposed to say no. Yeah, I mean, basically it just kind of, it, it interested me that, um, you know, we, and, and the other thing that cults really do is that they're not necessarily truly there to, to make the lives of the people who are in them better, but often it's to promote their own selves and their own organization. Um, so they, they use people's loneliness and the discrimination they face sort of against them as, as emotionally, and then they do things against people's best interests. And instead of helping people who have like cults, instead of helping people who have lived tragic lives to get better, they try to get money from them. And you think about how NFB works. It's constantly trying to get money from its membership base who are the people who it's supposed to be helping. And th like that's, you know, that's really problematic because they're supposed to be helping people who are blind and low vision. And one of their primary sources of revenue is from the people they're supposed to be helping. And now the, the, the average person who's blind often doesn't receive any significant tangible help from them, but they're made uh, on an emotional level to feel like they do. So yeah, we're covering the uh, culture of it all. And that it does seem a lot, uh, like I said, I don't have many years of, of experience with these organizations like um, all of you seem to. Uh, I sort of just compare it to the CNIB here in Canada. Um, that, yeah, you, that you feel like you have to, like, they're asking us for money all the time and they're supposed to, well, they claim they're supposed to be helping us. Uh, but there's this constant nagging for money. Um, there's another huge joke that everyone says it's they, NFB and the training centers. They try to teach you that you can live the life you want. You can do whatever you want. And as soon as you genuinely believe that they're like, no, you have to live the life we want. You have to like, now that you believe that you can be, that you can live the life you want now you know, you have to do what we say. Since there is a lot to cover on these topics, we have decided to do an extended edition of Outlook today. We are going to take a quick break now, but we'll be right back with more of today's program. Welcome back to an extended edition of Outlook. Trigger warning, this episode contains discussions of sexual and emotional abuse and things such as self-harm and suicide. We are speaking today with five panelists on the psychological and sexual abuse occurring within the National Federation of the Blind and Structured Discovery Training Centers in the United States. Back to the panel with Wayne. So, so I just want to make a point real fast, just, just very quickly. So I hadn't listened to a presidential release in years. If everybody, everybody knows the, the, you know, who's in the NFB, the, the presidential releases come out once a month and it's basically like a president's message and it goes to all of the, the chapters and all the local affiliates. And 
I, I'd been out of the NFB since 2007. I made it a point after my experience in Colorado to distance myself as far away from the organization as I possibly could. I wanted to hear what the president of the organization was saying, you know, about, you know, two survivors on the presidential release and that sort of thing. What I'm wanting to highlight here is the way, the language that was used and not necessarily about survivors, but to illustrate the lack of individuality and the, the lack of importance uh, placed on that. They never said, we want to do this. They never said, I want to do this as the president of the organization or th this thing. It was always the Federation believes this. The Federation wants this. Your Federation family is here for you to do this, whatever that is. And it really struck me when I heard that. And I, I, I was genuinely shocked for somebody who's been working so hard on being an individual and, you know, building my own identity um, since my experience in Colorado. That was really, really jarring. And it scared me a lot. And that's really all I have to say about that. that. But that illustrates just how little they care about individuality and individual expression of identity or anything else. The Federation wants this. The mm -hmm. Federation needs you to do this. All right. So if, if you want to give Addie maybe a chance to speak about your experience with advocacy and maybe these centers or this organizations and um, maybe speak if you want, I think it was you want to speak about sort of boundaries, which is a, is a big theme along with the culture. Absolutely. I agree fully with everything that's already been said about culture. And so I'm not really going to speak too much about that. Mm -hmm. um, although I do have a lot to add specifically on how that ties into sexual misconduct. Um, but to give a little bit of background, um, I was a member of the NFB on and off for nine years, and I considered attending CCB, which is the Colorado Center for the Blind, uh, prior to the rape and stalking that occurred. However, after confiding in someone who is now a member of the Survivors Advisory Task Force, they turned on me, which made attending the training program impossible due to the resulting backlash. After that, I stepped away from the NFB for a while prior to getting involved with advocacy work for the Colorado Association of Blind Students, um, which is a division of the NFB. I served as treasurer for one year, and then the toxic culture eventually uh, just led me to remove myself from the organization entirely and focus on advocating in healthier ways. Um, and then in regard to boundaries, um, I also want to um, address the question about like what um, blind people are taught compared to sighted children, because uh, I think that yes. ties into this a little bit. Um, yeah. So I'm not exactly sure uh, what sighted ch uh, children learn and how that compares to my experience. Uh, I went through the typical sex ed classes in K-12. But aside from that, I was not educated about boundaries, sex, or consent. Um, and I do think it is really important to mention the boundary piece and note that people with disabilities are often infantilized. Consequently, boundaries are not respected. For example, 
and there's so many, but yeah. <laughs> uh, blind people, as blind people, we are frequently grabbed when traveling independently and expected to be grateful toward the people who think that they are helping us. It is okay for people to ask us if we need help, and better yet, if they can ask uh, specifically how they can best assist us. But it is not okay to disregard our bodily autonomy because it is a boundary violation. Yeah, and it's it's one of those things that I've I've thought more and more about is in the blind community, just just a few people in particular that I've noticed throughout my my life don't have those boundaries and do sort of, you know, speak inappropriately out in public to to the opposite sex or whatever it may be. And I, I, I have always been kind of wondering what that is, why that is in the blind community. It seems to be uh, more of a more of an issue maybe than uh, than in another community. Well, I Absolutely. think the centers. Con- oh, I was going to say I think the centers contributed that to that too, because I have so many people who have contacted me and said there was something I had a lot of trauma around, or um, there was something that was painful to me because I had chronic pain, or I had significant anxiety, and I was made to do. And when I expressed concern they told me, oh, well, you signed paperwork saying you do whatever we say. And I want you to remember that these are adults. And in what, like, in what workplace, if you said, okay, I'm not going to go on a hike or no, I love to hike. I'm not, you know, using this as an example. But like, if you said you weren't going to go on like, you know, the extracurricular hike, they were to say, well, then you're not going to work here anymore. Um, and I think that that has to do with consent because at the centers, you're basically told you do whatever we say. Like if we tell you to do something, like for me, I was very afraid of fire because I had a friend who died in a house fire. And I expressed, I really didn't want to do the birth. I didn't feel ready to do the birthday candles or lighting the grill. And I was basically bodily pushed toward the flame by my home ec instructor uh, through tears. Like I was crying hysterically and made to do it. You want to know something? I've never done it since. And the weird thing is I always wanted to learn to overcome that. I wanted to learn to grill and I wanted to learn to light birthday candles. And since that day, I've never done it. And so clearly this, this method was not effective and it was not about me. It was about checking off some box that, Hey, look, we had our student light birthday candles. Instead, what I've never done it again. And I've had so many like chronic pain, chronic fatigue, um, And there are people who say, there are blind people who say, well, you know what you're signing up for. Okay. If it, and that shows the trauma that exists culturally in the blind community. If we think that it is okay to make an adult do something through tears, through hysteria, through pain, through exhaustion, and we think that they should be pushed to do that, then we as a community have a cultural and and a community wide trauma around boundaries mm-hmm. yeah and i mean that's that's where i i definitely struggle with it in the world with many things but in particular this this all this stuff that we've been talking about is these extremes and i'm a, I'm a very middle ground person i'm not very extreme with with much so i do find that this this whole idea of these these programs the intensive nine months programs i just the more i kind of think about them the more i kind of feel like it is a little bit much and like like you gave that example there while it's supposed to help free you feel free and independent by pushing these skills so hard like with, with the with the candles for example that does the opposite it it uh, causes more fear of that thing and and you can't even feel comfortable doing it throughout your life um i i think what's happened here and it, we're in a terrible problem here um and especially from canada um 
especially the audience of this radio, the pe- nobody knows anything about blind people and what they can do, especially in Canada. Yeah. Um, the, the expectations are so low. Um, it's terrible. It's disgusting. I mean, the thought of even a blind people being able to light a candle, nobody would even think it's possible. And it's devastating to me that the NFB has so warped what we're trying to do. And it makes me so angry. The nine months that we do, that we're going to do at the Pacific Training Center will not be like that. And I promise you, it will not be like that. It, it's, a, it's just disgusting. Who, what is, what is, I just went to a retreat um, from one of our donors and I actually got to listen to the, the, the founder of the Roots of Empathy. Hmm. And she talks about empathy and how we are losing it in society sometimes. And, and if, if you cannot be with an individual who is terrified and crying and not realize that that's not the right thing to do and that's not the right way to teach them, what is wrong with you? And what is wrong with an organization that promotes that lack of empathy? And I don't know. I'm not saying everybody in the NFB is like that. I mean, I'm not like that. But there are def- I agree with what's been said. There is definitely a culture that I have seen like that. That does happen. And it's so, it makes me angry because blind people need empowerment. It's desperate. I mean, I meet blind people every day. We have such a wait list. Mm-hmm. People, our student that just graduated, lost her sight 10 years ago. She wasn't even able to go out of her house until she came to us. And, and so this is what I fight my life doing. And I think in the States, it's different because there's a lot more options. And so that is the only challenge here with this discussion is we don't have any of this. We don't even have the bad stuff. And thank God we don't. I mean, we have a bad agency in CNIB would never have a blind person light a candle in a million years. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they don't even let you go and get your own food. I mean, they'd probably cut your meat for you. I mean, that's what we're dealing with in Canada. So, oh, it's, 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 it's so awful for me to hear this and, and how, how something good went so wrong. And I think that's what, you're, what we're all able to see by this, um, everything we've talked about here and everything you've all shared today is that there's a lot of pain and there's a lot of trauma. And it's, it's difficult, like I say, being fairly new to this, I'm, I'm seeing it from a different angle. And this show, Outlook, we are all about empathy. That is our word. That is my word. That is the theme of this show. And that's why we share um, each other's outlooks. And that's what we're doing here today. And it, it's hard stuff, as we've said, but it's important. Yes, and Radio Western has been such a great platform for us. I just want to give them yes, a, a shout you. out here again in that they, they are so open to us airing any content that we feel is important. And we, we've felt these issues um, since all this stuff really started coming out near the end of, of 2020. And um, I mean, obviously, it was going on way before then, but um, at least, mm-hmm. you know, it's finally getting talked about, which, you know, these things aren't easy to talk about, but it's so it, I just admire everyone here for, for speaking and, and coming to the show today to discuss this stuff, because it's it's not easy to talk about. But if we don't talk about things, then they can never there can never be we can, can't work on them and, and, and come up with solutions and try to, to make things better. So back to Addie, who would like to talk a little bit more about her experiences. I initially stayed silent 
because the assailant, who was a CCB student at that time, instilled fear in me by threatening to come find me if I stopped talking to him or if I told anyone what had happened. The individual I confided in, who is now a member of the Survivors Task Force, detected a drastic change in my demeanor and eventually convinced me to confide in her. After doing so, she twisted the heinous crime that had been committed against me into gossip that spread like wildfire. In response, Brent Batron and Kimberly Johnson contacted me to inform me that I am no longer allowed on any of the NFB properties, that I am responsible for all of the gossip that was circulating, and that I am not allowed to talk to anyone aside from a therapist about my experience. And if I did speak to someone other than a therapist, they were going to take me to court. It seemed that the assailant was emboldened by the favoritism that is ingrained in the culture of the NFB because he knew that his behavior would be condoned so he could get away with anything. Coming forward was incredibly re-traumatizing because the person I confided in did not believe me given that they are close friends with the assailant. Furthermore, they violated my trust by reporting me to Julie Deaton and spreading a twisted version of my story to countless people. These actions resulted in me being threatened into silence for several years until everything started to be swept out from under the rug at the end of 2020. And Wayne, if you want to speak from your experience? Absolutely. So um, I'm actually, before I jump into my story, um, I'm not going to, of course, go into the full details here because of time constraints. But if anyone is interested, you can find the complete details of my story on the American Council of the Blind Sunday edition podcast. Uh, The American Council of the Blind is another blindness advocacy organization here in in the United States that actually splintered off from the NFB in 1960. Um, so they, they've been doing, they did a wonderful job helping me get my story out. And so I'll briefly now touch on exactly what happened. So um, it was 2006 and I started attending the Colorado Center for the Blind. Um, you know, I, I, it, everything was pretty, you know, um, pretty toxic really from the get-go. I had... Um, I had a roommate with his girlfriend living in the apartment with me. Um, she was breaking the center uh, code of conduct, you know, which was like, you know, the apartments were not supposed to be co-ed. Um, I actually uh, heard them having sex one time in the apartment. It was really awful. And especially for a 19-year-old kid who really had never been away from home before and had not experienced anything like that before. I didn't know how to handle it. I didn't know, you know, what to do. Um, so (laughs) that's, you know, uh, my experience at CCB, there was a lot of, there was a lot of backbiting among the, among the students, you know, talking about staff behind their backs. There was a lot of, um, staff talking about students behind their backs. I had, uh, a computer instructor come to me and say, 
uh, that they were going to have this huge party. I wasn't invited, of course, but they were going to have a huge party about uh, a student that they particularly didn't like that was leaving the program. And he kind of laughed about it. And at the time, I laughed about it too. But looking back on it years later, it was like, what, 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 what was that? Like, that was so absolutely unprofessional. Um, so that gives you a little tiny backdrop into the uh, sort of the toxic culture of the center itself. There was a lot of bullying. There was a lot of things that we've already covered here on the podcast today. So fast forwarding to about June, it was well, actually July of 2006, um, we were supposed to attend national convention. And I was instructed to, you know, we all had roommates. And my roommate at the time was my travel instructor. Now, think about that for a second. A student being put in a room with a professional, an instructor, who you're going to, you know, you're going to see them in their underwear, you know, that sort of thing. Like, so, so unprofessional. There was no other people in the room that would have been able to, um, to protect me from what was about to happen. So it would have been, it was Wednesday night and, um, you know, we had just gotten back from sessions, general sessions at the convention. And his parents actually came up to the room and, and, you know, hung out with us. And then after, you know, we had a good time. And then after that, it was, uh, I was basically um, ordered to take my clothes off by this instructor. And I thought, I literally just did know, I just did not know anything. I was thought it was going to be like some sort of like, you know, naked pillow fight or something, something stupid high school thing, you know? And, you know, he started touching me inappropriately. Um, he started saying things to me like, you knew, I knew you were gay. I always, I know that you're gay. I've always known. Um, you have to keep this a secret. Don't tell anybody what, you know, what we're doing together. Um, this lasted you know, this, um, these advances, this, these inappropriate touchings and things, uh, lasted throughout the convention. And, you know, it was, it was very messed up because I, on a physical level, enjoyed it very much, but on a mental level, I knew it was so wrong. He was married. He had a wife, he had a kid, he had his wedding ring on his finger when he was doing these things to me. Um, so the, 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 you know, these things, you know, went on basically throughout my training. I remember telling my mom one time that, that, you know, I thought I was in love with him and that, you know, this sort of thing. And so my mom didn't even, you know, I didn't give her enough information about what was actually happening because I was too shell shocked. Um, at some point I, I tried to break away from him. I started, you know, realizing, Hey, this is wrong. I told him about it, um, told him that it was wrong. And he, you know, he would try to do little things to say, oh, is this, is this too much? Is this too much? He would like pick me up off the ground, put me back down, you know, that sort of thing. Um, there were several instances in, in the travel class where instead of going out on, you know, trips, we were just making out in his office and he was doing things to me at, on site, like at the, at the, you know, the center. And, you know, like I say, while I enjoyed it, on a physical level, you know, I was still very worried about what was going on, you know, mentally. Um, I was unable to fully stay break, broken away from him. And, uh, you know, after, you know, 2006, the September was when I graduated. Um, I 
you know, eventually told my mom about it in August again and said, this was really, this was really terrible. I can't stop what's going on. I feel very out of control. And she said to me, well, you can either leave or you can, you know, or you can stay at the center. And because my mom worked at the Louisiana Center for the Blind, um, I was going to just go back home to more NFB stuff. I was going to just go be back around more NFB people. And I thought that if I left, I thought that I would, if I left the center early without completing my training, I thought that I would be judged by my peers. I thought I would be judged by the, 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 by my, you know, friends that worked at LCB. Um, I thought I would be judged by the organization. Um, and I couldn't, I wasn't really ready to, to, you know, take that on. So I unfortunately ended up staying and enduring more of this sexual abuse. Um, it, I never tried to report it. I didn't think that I would have a voice if I did report it. And from hearing all of these experiences that have been shared here, I now fully realize on a very deep level that I would have not had any sort of voice in making myself heard about my experiences. Um, it was a friend of mine who told me about Stacy and the work that she was doing around, uh, it was December. And I contacted Stacy. Um, it was on Twitter. And I t- explained to her that I unfortunately have a story that I need to, I need to get out. What, what, what can I do? And she said, well, it's, it's, I'm not posting, I'm not collecting stories on Facebook anymore. So if you want then I will uh, I will take what your story in full confidence, and then we can we can work from there. So it was December twenty third of twenty twenty um, when I sat down and wrote my entire story for for Stacy. Um, since then, I've been in contact with the lawyers at the uh, Omar Law Group. Um, I'm a part of the you know the class action settlement um, that's been going on here in the states around these centers and their conduct. Um, I did file a code of conduct complaint form and my instructor who is now the assistant through was the assistant director, got promoted to the assistant director. Uh, Brent Batron has now resigned and admitted to what he did to me. Um, and so since then it's been a, you know, very cathartic experience, uh, being able to make my voice heard on numerous occasions, uh, both the news reporters as well as here and on the uh, ACB Sunday edition podcast, which I referenced in the beginning, if you would like to hear my story in full detail. Well, thank you very much, Wayne, for sharing that part of your story. And uh, that's what we're doing here. Uh, Jasmine, did you want to say a bit more about your situation? I just wanted to very, very quickly, and Stacey will elaborate on this, I'm sure, as well as Abby and Wayne, about the response of leadership when instances like these are reported. Um, so I, luckily for me, did not experience any kind of sexual assault um, anywhere near what Abby and Wayne experienced. And um, I thank you so much for sharing your stories. Um, but I remember going to the director of the training centre in tears after a horrendous travel um, lesson where I again got shouted at and had a lot of traumas triggered. So I showed up at their door 
sobbing and telling them that I was really struggling with travel. I didn't give them much information because I was afraid to, but I did tell them frankly that I was beginning to get suicidal. Um, and while they seemed to be really kind about it, they basically essentially gaslit me, really, because they told me that um, they're sure that I don't actually want to and that they'd lost um, people dear to them by suicide and then they're sure that I, they, that I wouldn't want to do that to my family and friends, which is a terrible thing, thing to tell someone who was suicidal. But I think for me, it shows how much leadership either minimizes, ignores, or retaliates um, against anyone who reports on one of themselves, because obviously they try to cover each other's back. You are listening to Outlook on Radio Western or as a podcast. Time for one more break, and we'll be right back. Welcome back to the final segment of today's extended edition of Outlook on Radio Western. Trigger warning, this episode contains discussions of sexual and emotional abuse and things including self-harm and suicide. Today we are speaking with five panelists on the psychological and sexual abuse occurring within the National Federation of the Blind, and Structured Discovery Training Centers in the United States. Yeah, Stacey, yeah. do you want to maybe um, talk about how this all came out, like I said, on social media in December, and you were sort of at the helm of a lot of it and saw a lot of it happen? Sure. Well, like I said, I've been involved in the NFB since 1999. And um, since 2001, I've been aware of incidences of sexual misconduct that have happened at NFB events and at training centers. During the summer of 2001, I worked as a counselor at the Colorado Center for the Blueline. And we had a lot of concern about one of the middle school students and a 34-year-old counselor. And um, you know, this, this should have been taken care of weeks in advance. I mean, everyone knew that inappropriate things were going on. I walked into a room at one point in one, one evening, and I found a 13 year old student having intercourse on the floor with the 34 year old counselor. And again, we're talking, we're not talking about you know, some, some gray area between a 17 and a 19 year old, we're talking like 13 and 34. I immediately wheeled around, told a fellow counselor. We told Melissa Riccobono, who was the, um, you know, the summer program, uh, assistant director at the time. She told the director, uh, the, the summer program director, and then Julie Deaton was told. And while this, the, the instructor was fired and this girl's parents were called, they were discouraged from going to the police. And I mean, the, the girl told us that her parents had been told, oh, you know, it would be very traumatizing for her if the police were to get involved. She'd have to relive this experience again and again and look how upset she is. And so the center director, Julie Deaton, talked the parents of a 13-year-old girl out of going to the police um, after her daughter had their daughter had intercourse with a 34-year-old man. And not only did that happen, um, 
but you know, again, it, it not only is that bad enough, but Julie is a mandated reporter. The state of Colorado, it, it's it's illegal to run a program for youth and not report if there's any incidences of sexual assault or misconduct. It's also illegal in Colorado to run a program that includes people with disabilities and not report whether they're adults or students. People with disabilities are legally classified in Colorado as at-risk adults. And the reason for that is, as people with disabilities, we are at greater risk of sexual misconduct. The statistics don't lie. We simply are. It has nothing to do with our personal worth or value or physical or mental or any other kind of strength. We are at greater risk. We are at risk of, of experiencing this. And we have barriers to reporting these things. Um, and so Julie was in a position to have needed to, to report this and did not. I then had several other incidents that happened to myself in convention elevators, particularly. I had two that happened in convention elevators. Um, I had one where, where people put their hands down my pants and in an in instance inserted their fingers into my vagina. And in one instance, I elbowed the gentleman. He was an older drunk gentleman. And I, I don't know why I'm calling him a gentleman, nasty guy. But I, um, I was shocked for a second. Like I didn't, like it, it took me a second. And then I elbowed him like off me. And he's like, you know, I, I mean, I didn't elbow him like in a really Kung Fu style. Like, oh yeah. And then I just opened a can. I, you know, it was, but, but I think it was enough to let him know, like, she's not going to take this. And then I had another incident that happened at a scholarship event. I was in a room surrounded by blind people. I was in a room. It was a scholarship event. And I was there as not as a scholarship winner, but as a friend of, of scholarship winners. And I was standing in a group of blind people and we were all hanging out in a little circle and talking, you know, as you do, people were milling around drinking. And the, the person standing next to me who was a scholarship winner, he put his hand on my pants and, you know, into my underwear, the whole thing. And at the, this was the one that really haunts me because I, in the other two elevator situations, I actually reacted and I, I um, put an end to it. I stood there for like 10 minutes, letting this guy fondle me. And I know that it's not my fault that he is the one who did that. Every day, I feel terrible that that happened. I wish I would have grabbed his wrist, pulled it out of my pants and held it up for everyone to see. Um, hi, Josh Gibson from Oklahoma. Anyway. So the, so, so that happened and, um, and, and this person just thought, and it makes me feel so upset because I think of myself as a very assertive, confident person. And this person just put their hand on my pants and took advantage of me in a room full of people who had no idea it was going on. And I told Pam Allen about this because Pam was on the scholarship committee. And she basically blew it off and laughed and was just like, oh, you guys, you guys have such crazy parties. Like, that's what she said. And then she like went on and, and like, that's all she said. And um, so, so getting back to what happened, um, I, I've been aware for many, many years of things that have gone on. Um, and not too long ago in, the, in, in 2018, in the fall of 2018, um, Mark Riccobono, the president of the NFB, posted something on his Facebook in solidarity with people in the Me Too movement. And I made what I thought was an incredibly innocuous comment like, okay, great. Now let's make sure that the NFB is safe or now let's make sure that the NFB is, is safe for everyone. And, uh, and you know, he, I, I mean, I thought it was just the most innocuous comment. And I was shocked to get a text from him telling me 
that he was blindsided by um by my post and basically putting me on the defensive not out of concern um about what was going on in the nfb but upset with me because i had posted about it and um he, he, he literally said, okay, I'm reading it now. I admit to being a little blindsided by your Facebook post suggesting that we're not doing anything to make our organization safe for young women. I said, I am not sure why you were blindsided by my comment. It sounded from your status update like you were interested in furthering discussion on this issue. You said that you are listening and that you are prepared to continue raising public expecta- expectations about how women are treated. You concluded your statement by saying that you were all in for doing your part to accelerate the speed of progress. As president of the NFB, isn't your part to address this issue within the organization you run? He then said, I am sad that you believe I have not been doing more than putting words into this effort. So he's trying to make me feel bad. Like, I'm sad that you don't think I'm doing enough. Um, I had thought we already were working, but you obviously disagree. I respect that. Although constructive although constructive suggestions and help would be welcome. So basically that saying um, you know, if you come forward with these problems, you also have to have suggestions on how to solve them, which is ridiculous. Having, okay, let's see, we have gone to great lengths to keep people safe. Your public message exposes clearly that I have not done enough without offering what more I should, should be doing. So again, it's saying that if I come to you and tell you that there's a huge sexual assault problem, I also better come with a 10-point bullet list of of things that you could be doing. So then I again tell him my initial comment was really meant to be just a really, you know, just, hey, rah, rah, yeah, me too. Let's do the best we can. Like, I had no idea I was going to get this. And then he basically says, um, you know, you might be right, although that came after saying that we need to work, also implying that the words are not being backed by action. My perspective is that you may be underestimating the power, the power of influence your words have on people. I haven't. Okay. So then the point is he basically put me on the defensive for speaking about it instead of saying, oh my goodness, I'm really concerned. You know, what, what are you saying? Like it was, it was very, you know, you can tell by the tone. So then he put me in touch with Pam Allen, who is in charge, you know, the LCB director, and she is sort of in charge or has been in charge of these efforts in the past. So I spoke with Pam at length. First, I sent an email to Mark and to Pam. And I said, look, I know that you guys know it's been published. My, that, that email has been published you know, in several newspapers. But I basically said, I know that you're aware of this happening. Um, we need to talk about it publicly, not behind closed doors. And then I had a discussion with Pam on the phone. And Pam knew about every single instance that I did. Um, we talked about Fred Schroeder. Fred, Pam's response was, I know, Stacy, but don't you think that taking him out of his position was enough? Don't you think that that embarrassment was enough? No, I don't. Okay. We're talking about somebody who has allegedly assaulted minors. So no, I don't. I don't think that's enough. And they knew about it. I mean, Pam knew about this. She knew about every single thing I was aware of. And again, I wasn't sure if she remembered the time that I, 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 I pointed something out to her. I, I told her about my incident. And I said, you know, I've never really experienced anything that bad. I mean, just the same kind of things we all have, you know, hands down our pants in the elevators. And she just went, <laughs> that's it. She didn't even have what she was. <laughs> and so, and, and so it wasn't even telling me like, no, Stacey, that, that was really um, bad. And so then what then happened, so moving the story along, then in 2018, I went um, to the state convention of the Nebraska, you know, the NFB of Nebraska. And um, Patty Chang was our um, national rep. 
And, um, you know, I, Patty Chang is, you know, the national rep who came from, um, you know, national center. And during one of the general sessions, I came up to her and, you know, gave her a hug from behind and said, Hey, how are you doing? And um, I'm trying to find my text because I immediately after this interaction, I went back to my hotel room and, and told a friend about it. Um, but basically, she was like, oh, Stacy, I hear you're posting things on Facebook that you shouldn't be. Um, you know, and, and I was like, well, I disagree. And she's like, you know, some things are better handled in private or by picking up a phone. And it, she was basically poop, like tisk tisking me for talking about this in an open way. So I immediately went back to my room, wrote out what had happened at length. And I mean, that was when I knew that these leaders knew and they didn't care. Like they didn't care. Um, and, and they knew about it and they weren't going to do anything about it. Like, like they knew and they were more focused on keeping it quiet than they were about actually doing something about it. Then, um, you know, what really was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back was I found out that someone who um, my husband had supervised and had been let go for sexual misconduct was being um, kind of promoted within the NBPCB structure and was being made an NOMCT, which is a, an O&M teacher trainer. And so my husband called a member of the NBPCB board and told them, you know, I was this gentleman's supervisor. I, you know, I want to let you know about this. And um, the member of the board said, well, there's no police report or anything about it. So, I mean, there's nothing we can do. Now, A, that shows like what, what a high threshold they have before they can actually investigate something. You have this person's supervisor saying this happened. This is why they were let go. And it's, well, we don't have a police report. And so, um, and, and, and there was nothing in, okay, you might say, okay, you, you're not sure you have grounds of dismissing him, uh, his certification, but you certainly don't need to be promoting him. I think we can agree with that. Um, and so when that happened, um, when that, like that was when, when my husband called a member of the NBPCB board and was basically told like, Hey, we're aware of it, or, you know, we've heard rumors, but no one's filed a police report. And I now know that there are other allegations that NBPCB was aware of about this person from another center. And so I immediately went to my keyboard and I wrote something on Facebook, like raise your hand. If you, if you think that, um, People, uh, structured discovery professionals who commit sexual assault should not be shuffled around from training center to training center. And, you know, that opened up the floodgates in a way that I never could have imagined. And then what happened, and again, it's one of those things where I said something and perhaps it was blown over, but then leaders made it worse. Then I, I was contacted by Joanne Wilson. I was contacted by several other people telling me, you know, maybe you shouldn't post about this on Facebook. Maybe this isn't a good idea for your career. I would hate to see this like negatively impact, impact your career. And that's what showed me that these leaders at the very top of the organization know about this stuff and are committed to hiding it. And so that's when I started collecting stories. Um, and I collected over 70 stories. And, um, you know, it's interesting because, you know, Addie talks about when, um, after her, her rape at the Colorado Center, she confided in someone who is a member of the NFB Survivor Advisory uh, Panel or Survivor, uh, NFB Survivor Advisory Task Force. And this same member of that task force has been actively working against people coming forward 
um, and, and allies who are coming forward. And there, there are huge problems with I, at least four members of the NFB survivor panel. There's one that is widely known. Like everyone knows she's calling survivors sluts and whores. And she called one particular survivor who was assaulted as a minor by a married man calling this person who was a minor at the time, a homewrecker. Um, you have another person who on Facebook, um, talked about how, you know, when these things happen at training centers where people are legally obligated to call adult protective services, they should not do it. Um, there are, I mean, there, there's just, you know, even now at the very top, the people who say that they're committed to, to helping survivors on the survivor advisory panel have some really significant concerns against them. So that's really why I did this. Um, you know, I'm probably forgetting things and I wish I had the documents in front of me more to, to discuss like what really, and what, when I left the NFB was after that NFB of Nebraska convention, when Patty Chang, uh, again, she basically, um, gave me this stern sort of talking to that, like, oh, wouldn't it be, you know, th these things are better done by picking up the phone or having in private conversations or in small conversations, like small conversations. And I thought, wow, that's what we've been doing for decades. And clearly it's not working because here we are. So right. that's that. Here we are. So from what I'm getting, um, if you want to elaborate a little more, you, you, as far as what's going on, how we're going to make it, make this better now and what, what steps we're going to take, you're not seeing, um, what you'd like to see. What, what do you, what do you think is the path forward for this, Stacey? I'm going to be completely honest, and I know many people aren't going to want to hear this, but I think Mark Riccobono, Pam Allen, and Julie Dean need to resign, as well as the entire boards of the NFB, LCB, and CCB. Here's why. Mark Riccobono knew about these things. We, we have documented he's still harassing people who are coming forward as allies to survivors. I've gotten calls from people who have said, wow, I like to comment on Facebook, or I forwarded something. And then I got a call from Mark Riccobono, who was angry at me for forwarding this comment or liking this comment. So, I mean, these are some, some of these people are, are national leaders. Some of these people are just kind of random members or chapter presidents. Um, and that, so I, and the thing is this, this isn't a cultural problem. When a cultural problem happens, it's not just one person. What Rick Abono has known and done does not exist in a vacuum. He's been allowed to do this by his board of directors who have allowed this culture to manifest. Um, and I've talked to, you know, a different like organizational psychologists and they say when, when something like this happens, it's not enough to let the director go. You have to let the whole board go because that won't, it, one person going will not change the culture. Um, the way that Colorado, the, the, the cultures of Colorado and the sexual assault that exists at Colorado versus Louisiana are different, but in both cases with, with Louisiana, it tends to be more assault. And people um, reporting to Pam that they've been touched inappropriately by other students and nothing being done. Um, no, no police being called, no ramifications for the student. People come in, they tell Pam, and then they're asked to go back. To, they're just, they go back to class. And I've heard people say, you know, I was basically, you know, molested at morning announcements or in the library or at lunch. I, I went to Pam's office and told her, and then I went to shop. You know, like, and then I was sent to shop. And so that's that Louisiana, it tends to be more of a like assault and then like Pam not reporting it. Where at it tends to be more rape at Colorado Center. Um, I know Addie's talked about her experience, how she was raped at the student apartments. And then, um, you know, Brent Batron and Kimberly Johnson 
um, intimidated her. And I've heard three stories from three different people that involved rape that resulted in pregnancy and then coerced abortion. Um, and coerced abortion being coerced by Julie and center administrators by telling them, how can you be in this program if you're pregnant? You can't be in this program if you're pregnant. Um, and those are three people who have that story. They're kind of like the rape, impregnation, abortion group of three people. And then there's people like Addie who, you know, have, have also experienced rape. There's another person I know who's experienced rape there and, um, experienced retaliation. So Colorado tends to be more like, like less episodes, but full on rape where Louisiana tends to be more episodes, but more of a molestation type of, um, situation. Yeah. 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 So I guess here is where we're taking back power. And if we, if, if we can't force a board to all resign, uh, we, you all here today are taking a step to talk about it because we have to think about the children right now who are growing up and who are going to go into these situations. And that's why I'm doing this show. And that's why I care because I've been to conventions. I've been to a school for the, um, for, to get my guide dog. I was 14. If something had happened to me there, I would feel the exact same way all of you are. And I would want some accountability. So that's why I wanted to offer you all this platform here today. And it's, it's a messy, it's a messy situation always. And Yet here you all are. So I really want to thank you all for coming. Yes. Thank you so much, everyone, for speaking today. It's, uh, it's not easy stuff to talk about, but like you say, these private phone calls and stuff, it's not, it's not, getting, it's not getting out. And the only real way to make change with a lot of things is to talk about it more. Um, so I just, I really do applaud, applaud yeah. you, Stacey, for coming out with this and, and, uh, and then, you know, working together with, with other survivors to tell their stories and, and really get this more in the public public eye because I think it's if you don't talk about things then they just get swept to the background and nobody knows about it and it's it's dangerous. So I think I just really commend all of you for for speaking up here today on on Outlook. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much. This is so vital that just that that we keep talking about this and bringing out the stories um, because this is just sickening and appalling. Well, thanks for everybody for being on Outlook today. Stacy, Wayne, Addie, Jasmine, and uh, Elizabeth in your Canadian perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you, everybody. Of course. Thank you all so much for giving us this opportunity. Uh, we, can't, we can't thank you enough for, for the work that you're doing to help us get this message, not only out to U.S. listeners, but to listeners across the globe. We can't, we can't thank you yes. enough. Thank, thank you, thank you, thank you. Right. You're listening to Outlook on Radio Western or as a podcast, and we will see you next time. Send us an email. Outlook on Radio Western at gmail.com. Find us on Twitter at Outlook CFB. And on Facebook, facebook.com slash Outlook on Radio Western.